0: And now, the last in the present series of Pebble Millet One. It's the new series of Doctor Who. Is there any more joyous time for a young lad? Eleven-year-old Ben was already a firm fan of lighthouses, thanks to Blue Peter and the Goodies, so he was excited to see what the Doctor and now new favourite companion Leela would find. This is a flashback Metabolus 2 podcast on the horror of Fang Rock. Welcome everybody to number 56 of the Metabolus 2 podcast.
1: I am Ben. And I am David. And we are the Metabolus 2. Right, and today's show is all about season 15 opener, Horror of Fang Rock.
0: Horror of Fang Rock? Fang Rock sounds it sounds scary. It sure does. I mean, <laughs> if I was a lighthouse keeper, I would be very, very worried <laughs> if I was in charge of Fang Rock lighthouse. Yep.
1: I think this is one of the classics again. I think this is one of the uh, tried and true. This finishes off the stone cold. trilogy of Stone Cold classics here that we yep. started out with robots, yep. then uh, Talons, and now Horror Fang. of Fang Rock.
0: Yeah, and we fast forward from the uh, Victorian age to the Edwardian age, I believe. Yep, 1910. 1910, the golden age of lighthouses. Yep. I think we're in the English Channel, weirdly. Yep. Um, (laughs) uh, Fangrock is not a particularly English Channel uh, name for a thing. In fact... yeah, I would have expected us to be more out near the Silly Isles or something. Um, mm. But then, of course, Lord Palmerdale's yacht would probably not have been floating around near the Silly Isles. <laughs> so, here we are on the English Channel. It's Fang Rock. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's a base under siege. Yes. Um, it's a base. It's an Edwardian base under siege. Haven't had one of those before. And uh, everyone dies.
1: Sorry, spoiler alert. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and this is another emergency script because yeah. Terrence Dicks' uh, original script, The Witch Lords, was vetoed by the BBC because they were already going to do Dracula and they didn't want anything that might have taken the mickey out of their uh, classic cereal. And a
0: quick pop quiz, genre of television fans. Right?
1: Can anyone remember
0: the 1977 <laughs> BBC version of Dracula? Mm. Tumbleweeds drifting across the Transylvanian plain. <laughs> um how many of you remember The Horror of Fang Rock? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, everybody raises their <laughs> hand. So uh, the, the prosecution rests that the BBC just did not know what their best TV show was at that no, time. No, they didn't. They did not. Um, though I'll have to say, I'm very pleased that they didn't do The Witch Lords, because if they'd done The Witch Lords, we wouldn't have had The Horror of Fang Rock. Right. Um, and also, we wouldn't have given Terry time to develop the vampires that we meet later on in State of Decay. So, mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: so, since the script was cancelled, I think, after Terrence had finished uh, draft one, or the first episode, and so they had to cancel all the studio time, and they were forced to relocate too, mm-hmm. up to Pebble Mill in Birmingham.
0: Right, the famous Pebble Mill studios. Uh, hands up, our audience, who can remember Pebble
1: Mill at one? <laughs> My hand is up. I can't say I have, but I've seen Pebble Mill on the BBC extras on the DVDs. So Pebble Mill was awesome. When you were, um,
0: okay, I'm going to go down memory lane a bit here. When you were sick, when you were ill, and you stayed home from school, mm-hmm. um, you got to watch Pebble Mill at 1. Ah, which is, was that at 1 p.m.? It was at 1 p.m., yep. and it was kind of like nationwide, actually, only it was during the day. Um, and it was kind of awesome. Yeah? Yeah, I always remember. It's, it's, it, and I think mainly it was awesome because I was ill and therefore not at school <laughs> and allowed to watch TV during the day. Right. So, yeah, that's that's what everyone remembers Pebble Mill for.
1: Oh, no more Pebble Mill at one? It doesn't
0: exist anymore. They tore it down.
1: So, gone but not forgotten. Yeah. Well, that's, that's too bad because... Yeah, the Pebble Mill set, at least what they did with Pebble Mill at one, it opened out into a pastoral park-like setting.
0: It did, where where various Silurians and and Cybermen <laughs> could
1: be seen stumbling around. Yeah, <laughs> if I if I remember, I can't remember if that where they had uh, John Pertwee on, or was that the I think, uh, I, Patrick Troughton? I think
0: it was the one where Patrick Troughton, as is, as was his <laughs> wont, just sat there, and didn't say anything. <laughs> the world's hardest person to interview, Patrick Troughton. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, I think the combination of an, an emergency script yep. and that they had to relocate to Birmingham yep. and that uh, the Pebble Mill studio team really wanted to impress the folks down in London saying that they can actually do drama. Oh, uh, was that the case? I didn't realize that.
0: So it was, like, it was almost like, a, okay, we can do this stuff up here in Birmingham. Right. right. So okay. I think
1: they went all out and that helped stretch the budget because as we mentioned, Hinchcliffe blew the budget the previous <laughs> season with... The Towns of Wang Chiang. Yeah. So you don't notice a drop in budget at in all. the Horror of Fang Rock set. No, no. And I think it's because, in part, the folks at Pebble Mill really stepped it up i mean obviously you know
0: it's a base under siege there's a relatively Mm -hmm. limited sets you know i mean i guess they didn't actually reuse the sets from the goodies but they may as well have done um well we have
1: what we have the on the rock set we have the engine room set we have the eating area set Uh, we have kind of
0: the long shot of the lighthouse model we have the model of the ship. Um, bedroom. We had the bedroom. And then the lighthouse and then the lamp room. And the room. lamp room, yeah. And I think, you know, uh, it's actually, it's super convincing. Um, I mean, I oh, don't know yes. much about the interior of a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably knew more in those days than I do now about <laughs> the interior of a lighthouse. But it, it was pretty convincing. I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, where was I going with that?
1: Um I, it convinced me. It still does. Yeah, you didn't have to stretch very hard to suspend your disbelief that they were actually filming on a lighthouse. And Patty Russell, the director, worked with the designer, Paul Allen, and they went out to several lighthouses just to get a good feel for it. And the one thing that Russell wanted was to make them just a little less cramped, a little bigger, right. so a little easier to film because she would had to get four or five actors in certain shots in certain scenes, and right. that would have been pretty hard because right. the lighthouse, you know, three-person lighthouse crew, they weren't scaling up to four or five, six people in a scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, lighthouses. Yep. And, uh, you know, just to re-familiarize yourself with lighthouses, now it looks like you're going to be on the West Coast here I for am. a bit. yeah. Uh, you and your lady wife should go down the coast of Oregon and oh, the, go the, visit the... some of the lighthouses that are open. Oh, we are
0: famous lighthouses? Okay. Yeah,
1: it's quite the trip. Right.
0: And of course, if we, uh, in, in wonderful Minnesota, we have lighthouses too. Oh uh, yeah. Split rock
1: is the old, uh, the old
0: split rock lighthouse. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure lighthouses are still a thing
1: though. Are they with kind of GPS no, and, you know, no, not at satellites all satellites and stuff. They do have automated lights and they're not, they're certainly not a keeper. They do keep them on as an aid to navigation, but they're not as central or vital as they, as were, they were obviously in the 1910s. Yeah. 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 Um, the, so, the script that uh, Terence Dix turned in, Patty Russell had some issues with it, mainly because uh, Dix had set so much of it in the lamp room, which her complaint was that this was going to be all filmed with glass surrounding everything and with right. the reflections, and it'd be really hard not to get the uh, cameras being reflected back on it. And I, right. I've watched, I've watched this. Many, many times, and I've never seen once a camera <laughs> reflected in the lamp room scene. So they were extra vigilant. They move certain scenes down into, like, the crew quarters. Right. And it works really well. I think just everyone really rose to the occasion to make this into a um, masterpiece. I think it's unheralded masterpiece. I think it's one yeah. of the best of Tom Baker's run, despite so much adversity even the adversity coming from Tom Baker himself, who was yeah, he was not a like pleasant a, person to yeah, work with on yeah. this script at all.
0: I um, mean, and I think you know, by all accounts, um, obviously, you know, he still wasn't getting on with Louise Jameson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wanted to be on his own. Was missing mm-hmm. Elizabeth Sladen. I don't think like being directed by a woman. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, this is the second time he was being directed by Patty Russell, and yeah. uh, Rus- Russell said that he was somewhat cooperative on Pyramids, but he had totally gotten out of hand by the right. time right. of Horror the Fang Rock. Yeah.
0: Um, but you know, actually in some ways, and I think I've said this before, I'm very interested in the kind of the popular image of the fourth doctor and um, mm-hmm. the popular image of Tom Baker as this kind of grinning, gurning, kind of happy figure. When I remember back to, you know, kind of this, certainly this era of Baker, right? I don't remember him smiling at all. No. Um, I remember a kind of a grim, grumpy cross, Mm -hmm. kind of mysterious figure and that's kind of the fourth doctor that i remember the best Mm -hmm. Um, and i think it's from this time you know when Mm -hmm. he really was you know being kind of a horrible man to everybody wasn't really enjoying himself that much i mean
1: he was tom baker was basically the doctor and the doctor was an unhappy man
0: (laughs) yeah exactly and it came out in the performance and i and Mm -hmm. i think it makes the performance actually a lot stronger stronger and the kind of you know jelly baby proffering kind of grinning loon Mm-hmm. Um, that cosplayers enjoy so much. That's not my fourth Doctor at all. It's right. the fourth Doctor in in Fang Rock that I really I really
1: remember. Mm-hmm. And just the hostility between him and Louise Jameson, yep. who plays Leela, really came to a head. I think in this story. Yep. In the DVD commentary, the Louise said they were not getting along at all, yep. and Tom wasn't doing things that they had rehearsed, and she called him on it and stopped the scene two, three times, and people on the set and on the floor were getting kind of, "Mm, I'm not sure this is a good place to confront Tom on, but she got her way. She got it as they rehearsed, and they started to get along once she stood up to him. So I think Tom acted like a bully sometimes or just really arrogant, and it wasn't until he was called or stood up to did he respect that other actor to work with. Yeah, and I think you know, I
0: mean, I guess that's, that's isn't that what you tell your kids about bullies? Is you just got to stand up to them? And I think you know, I think they did the right thing. And I think you know, kudos to Louise Jameson. I think you know, obviously you know they get on super well nowadays. But mm-hmm. I mean, kudos for her for being a young a young actor who who did you know stand up to a man who was
1: pretty much a male chauvinist and a bully. <laughs> I think he's what he's about twenty years or senior too, isn't he? Yeah, he must be. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and Corey, now, yeah, Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. go ahead.
0: Oh, I was going to say, and the rest of the cast um, oh, you know, yes. are just amazing.
1: Colin Douglas, who plays Ruben, I think ultimately sells it. it. He is the make or break character in this story, and he makes Horror of Fang Rock what it is. Oh,
0: my God. He's like chilling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely chilling. And you know, is able to play Ruben and is able to play possessed Ruben mm-hmm. and is able to play the Rutan. I think he's right. the voice of the Rutan, unless yep. I'm very much mistaken. Mm-hmm. And you know, fantastic. The rest of our cast, you know, Adelaide and Harker, right. Palmer's Dale and Skinsale. I mean, it's it's a you know, it's a, it's an Edwardian kind of drawing room drama of some kind they're mm-hmm. crushed into the same space. But you know, the characterization, the subtlety of the characterization of, of, of those characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of tautology but anyway you you want to be the characterization Uh of the characters is amazing and Mm -hmm. like and again as you say you know this is this is kind of a really good example of how often the best who or the best genre drama is kind of written at high speed right um and you don't have time to go back and kind of you know refine the characters and you Mm -hmm. kind of write down what comes first into your head or whatever and i think you know that that kind of roughness with the characterization Mm -hmm. makes them a lot more realistic and a lot more
1: believable and you can see that kind of roughness just in the naming of Palmerdale and Skinsdale. If yeah. you were if you were going to Absolutely. catch this in, in like a second or third, well, probably a third edit, you wouldn't have the suffix Dale for both your two no. male yachting people.
0: <laughs> but if it was real life, it's mm-hmm. entirely possible that you have yes. two people who have roughly the same name. Yes.
1: And um, the actor who plays Vince Hawkins, John Abbott, mm-hmm. he's he's a little bit old for what I think they're asking him to play. Right. But he's kind of a young, green, uh, lighthouse uh, crewman. But he Lighthouse even, lad? Yeah, lighthouse. <laughs> I mean, because uh, uh, Ralph Watson, who plays Ben, who's the first to die by the hands of the, or the tentacles of the rutan. Uh, the rutan. He, <laughs> He seems to be channeling Eric Idle for the first part of <laughs> yeah. first um, first part, and we've seen we've seen him before. Uh, we, oh, we, well, of course, Colin Douglas was famously Bruce in uh, Enemy of the World, but then the next serial uh, Captain Knight in Web of Fear was Ralph Watson, who mm, plays right. p- plays Ben. So there's really quick characterization. So I, as I see Ben, Ben is channeling an Eric Idle, Monty Python character. Right. Ruben is. Colin Douglas and Ruben is has some really subtle acting. He's the curmudgeon, mm-hmm, old timer. Mm-hmm. He doesn't smile, but he's he really is clear with his lines. He really enunciates well it, it, it's it's a very formal style of acting then you compare it to john abbott's vince hawkins young vince hawkins yep. who's kind of mumbling bumbling less assured of himself so you, you have an acting style but it's also really expresses well for a generational style you have the old codger and the young lad right and, right and but there is some affection between reuben and young vince yep That is is seen a little bit later on the serial where uh, Ruben goes volunteers. I think it's the end of episode two. Ruben volunteers to go down to stoke the boiler. Right. Because Vince is shaking too much to hold a shovel. And that ultimately leads to the death of Ruben. Yep. Yep. But, you know, there's some affection there. And that affection and that um, trust in Ruben that Vince has ultimately leads to Vince being killed by ruben the rutan at the beginning of part four which is an absolutely horrific scene yes yes um, uh, because you have these characters
0: who, you, who who've, you trusted each other have affection for each other and it's i mean it's actually it's very reminiscent to me of, of, of actually a, a scene that i think is even more horrific which is the scene in uh in uh, pyramids uh, pyramids of mars um, mm. Where the two brothers Skarman um, confront each other. I mean, that's right. a that's a that's a terrible terrible right. scene. Um, mm-hmm. And this is reminiscent. That's, that's the, it's a similar level level of horror here. It's it's, right. it's very very affecting.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the horror I think it's a slow boil of the deaths, and I I charted them out. Yeah, our first death Ben happens at the early part of part one. Right. Our next death is Reuben, right. and that happens at the end of Part 2. So we have a death early on in Part 1 and a death at the end of Part 2. So that's almost a good 50 minutes, 45 minutes between the deaths. And it right. isn't until Part 3, halfway through, does Palmerdale die. Right. Then at the end of Part 3 is our fourth death with Harker. And when that happens, both Palmerdale and Harker happen... Off screen. Actually, right. all all our deaths kind of happen off screen. Ben, we see the body, but we don't see him die. Reuben, we see him go into the coal shoot, and we don't see him die. We hear the scream up in the crew room. It isn't, I think, until, let's see, Vince Hawkins, that they start a part four when he is killed by Ruben with that electric blue shock. Right. Is, that's, I think, the first death that we see if memory serves. And then we have rapidly Adelaide. Um, She's zapped and then Skinsdale with the tentacle around his neck is the last one to die near the end of part four. But it's it's a slow progression and then once we get to part four, then we get three deaths in a matter of 24 minutes and four deaths as you add in the routine yeah it's, it really it really ramps up so that I think Dix and Holmes have the the pacing the pacing. tension yeah. right and it's Holmes who wanted who indicated or said that Dick should kill off Adelaide and skinsdale because you know, Dix rather liked skinsdale and wanted him to survive but um, it was I think Holmes wanted to do the ballot of, uh, Ballad of Flan, and Isle. Uh, Flan and Isle where yep. there's no survivors and so that's why Dix kills everyone off and yep. I think that's what makes this work.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know just the the spatial expressions of the of the rutin as Ruben just those, <laughs> oh you know, that's just creepy, that's, sinister. Yeah, and obviously you know you have a monster that's really enjoying being a monster. Um,
1: <laughs> it's a devilish grin. <laughs> it's a horrible,
0: horrible creature.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and
0: when we have the final reveal of the Rutan itself, which you know it, that's a hard monster
1: to pull mm-hmm. off. Um, it's a jellyfish. <laughs>
0: Yeah, anything that's got tentacles, anything that's kind of amorphous is really difficult to work with 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 effects because, you know, it looks like what it is, which is, you know... Mm-hmm. a balloon with some stuff on it. It is brilliantly realized. Even mm-hmm. to this day, it's one of the most convincing monsters that I, I think, you know, seventies Doctor Who ever did, to be honest. Convincing as in something that truly alien right. um, and something that looks like something horrible, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Yeah, and it glows, it's translucent, so there is luminescence, as Leela says. It is not a humanoid shape. Yeah. It, it kind of crawls somehow like a slug or a snail over rock and up the stairs. Yeah. It it looks like jello with this kind of swirly stuff in it. It's really, I think, I think it's really a convincing monster.
0: Very, very convincing. Very convincing. And, of course, you know, there's an extra layer of vera that's added in typical kind of Robert Holmes fashion by just these allusions to the Santarans. you know, who are, of mm-hmm. course, famous Holmes... Um creations and mm-hmm. you know from there like a huge fan you know fan lore is created and we get you know the endless war against the against the Santarans, the Santarans mm-hmm. and Rutans. and you know from that a million pieces of fan fiction sprung. Um, it's genius. Yeah,
1: and Dick said that was a last minute decision, last minute thought to bring in the Rutans because he he had this blobby jellyfish monster. yeah and in contrast to the Santarans who are very solid, uh, compact military figures, yeah. to have a, and Dix were a blobby, gelatinous enemy as the Rutans. He thought it was quite funny. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of one, one-upping one or uh, <laughs> taking a slight at uh, Holmes, right. and it was a nice internal link between that and the Time Warrior for, <laughs> for Dix and Holmes because you know, the Time Warrior was what... Uh, Dick's commissioned Holmes to write, and set in a medieval period, and yep. then Holmes set Dix on uh, writing in a lighthouse, which Dix goes "I know nothing about a lighthouse," so it's yep. just it's a nice connection. And we've never seen the Rougons on the show. I mean, they've been in novels, yep. but it's it's really a nice little internal circle. In very the story. nice, yeah. yeah. And I
0: think I, I you know in, in New Who I've actually got a bit sick of shape shifters, which I think are a very very convenient piece of plot device. Um, in order to you know essentially save money on on monster costumes.
1: Well, we had that quite a bit in the Hinchcliffe era. We had the Zygons, and Pyramid of Mars. We had some kind of shape shifting with. Ah, you know. yeah. But I guess it so. does. Yeah. But it doesn't seem as egregious as in New Who. No, it seems more creative, I guess. Very creative,
0: opinion. and I think you know the the, the shape the shape shifting is done in different ways, and I think um unlike unlike New Who. In Classic, who shape shifting always seems to cost something, yes. Um, there is a you know, it, it's not completely accurate in whatever way, right? And you know, in order to take someone over or in order to take on someone's shape, you have to give something up or you have mm-hmm. to betray yourself in some kind of way. You know, like the zygons are obviously, you know, nurse, what's her name is, uh, you're, you're a scary nurse, you must be a zygon. Uh, you know, uh, Sutek possessing Marcus Garman. You know, Marcus Garman is, a, is basically a zombie. Right. Um, and you know, the Rutan, who makes himself itself into the shape of of old Reuben. Obviously, really enjoys being a humanoid. Um, <laughs> but we hear it say that it, that it that it actually much prefers being a jellyfish. um right. When it when he calls it by, a
1: ridiculous shape, a ridiculous <laughs> shape.
0: I I don't believe it. I think I think this is kind of a trans. Um, a transvestite, a sweet transvestite style Rutan who actually enjoys being a human um, for a while. Cross
1: cross speciesist. It's a cross speciesist, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: Now, uh, since we're talking, you know, ostensibly this is all about Leela. Can I just <laughs> call out the awesomeness of Louise Jameson's costume?
1: Just the just the first scene. She's in this seaside bathing, early nineteen hundreds costume, which is really cute on her. Super cute, super cute. And then <laughs> have that scene. Mm-hmm. Where she goes, uh, <laughs> I'm going to Take my clothes off now. Well, yeah, sort of. Like, I could do with some dry clothes more than a hot drink. Oh, and Vince goes. Oh, I'm afraid we don't have nothing suitable for a lady. And then Lila, I'm, I'm no lady, Vince. The clothes you are wearing will be most suitable. And then she starts to disrobe, and Vince, <laughs> very embarrassedly, classic, um, goes off and says, "I'm going to go find you something." And the and. Vince Vince is an interesting character. John Abbott's interesting character. For a young for a supposed young lad who is embarrassed by the sight of a woman disrobing and yes, okay, it's the Edwardian period. But Vince is wearing a wedding ring. <laughs> oh, so, I did not notice that, yeah. right. Okay. So, um I'm sure it's the actor's wedding ring rather yes, than I'm the sure character's wedding ring, but it's quite It's quite visible in the first scenes when he's looking out over the sea with his uh, uh, ring finger over the telescope, and again when he's kind of shielding his eyes. So, well spotted. There's there's more than Vince than meets the eye. Meets the eye. (laughs) Meets (laughs) the eye.
0: And then, of course, then the clothes that she does dress up are this absolutely amazing, um, you
1: know, woolly sweater, Mm -hmm. which makes her look like a million dollars. I mean, good Lord, she looks fantastic. Yeah, Jameson said she wanted a baggy fisherman's sweater down to her knees, but the costumer said, No, I think we're going to do a little bit more form-fitting, and uh, you're going to wear a belt to cinch it in. (laughs) Uh, And she
0: looks absolutely fabulous. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Louise. I'm I'm really not just a horrible man who thinks you Mm -hmm. look amazing, but I am. Um, Well, you
1: look fantastic. (laughs) She looks amazing, but also she is acting her socks off in this story. Oh my god,
0: she is. This is this is perhaps I think you know. I mean, it is a run of 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 great pieces Mm -hmm. of Louise Jameson acting, but this is this is this is top notch, top notch.
1: You really have to watch her not doing her lines. Well, you can watch her doing lines. But watch how she reacts when she isn't given any lines. When she's just in the background listening to things going on. Uh, just the looks that she gives. Whether she's amused or scared or concerned. She is giving it her all to sell this story. And she helps convince the audience of the urgency, the terror, the the impending doom of right. this story. Right. And she's given the line at the beginning of part two as the steam yacht is crashing into the rock of Fang Rock when Ruben says they're on the shore now or they're on the rock now and Leela goes, they will all die then. And that's at the very beginning of part two. And that is the foreshadowing for right. what happens in the whole story. Yep. And... When, a little bit later in episode two, just to kind of stress what Louise Jamison's doing in the acting, when Reuben is going, reckon I know what you've seen, there's always been the beast of Fang Rock, the doctor is amused by that, but Leela looks concerned. You know, this kind of ties into what she told Vince about talking to Seals as stupid earlier, right before she starts disrobing. She says you should listen to the old ones and learn from them, and yep. she, she is listening to the old one, to learn learn from and she is concerned
0: and she's right of course Mm -hmm. she's absolutely right you know and she has this um primitive um savage you know sixth sense thing Mm -hmm. um and you know she she can sense danger and the danger is there she knows right
1: but she plays leela so intelligently and dicks and holmes in this script give her a really intelligent character to play she can tell when she's being slighted. So again, in episode two, um, the doctor dismisses that there's a beast and says something like, the folk around here have been fishermen for generations. They're almost as superstitious as your people are. And you can see Leela crestfallen, but then she comes right back with an assertion, so how do you explain the body? You know, so she yep. you can see it in Jameson how she portrays Leo's face, but then in the script also gives her, you know, the way Jameson delivers the line, it's a challenge. So yep. if it's not superstition, how do you explain Ben's body? Right. And also just a little bit later she gives a really intelligent question she asks, "Why did you not tell them the truth?" Right. And the doctor responds because they don't know what the truth is yet, and the script allows her to be really give really intelligent questions really play this character as an intelligent but uneducated woman Right. and I think that I think that's a well without tipping the hand too much what we'll see is a really different character next time in the invisible enemy with Leela this is the height of Leela being intelligent equal to the doctor rather than the classic role of asking sidekick, just asking the dumb question to move the plot along.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's, as I said, and I think, you know, I think she, I don't know whether Louise Jameson then was a, you know, was an accomplished stage actor. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, certainly she's known for her, you know, her work on the stage. And I think, you know, having a small set and having a small group of people, you know, having having a lot of lines within, you know, with with an economical script with 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 relatively few people, Mm -hmm. um, relatively few speaking parts. Mm -hmm. Everybody is kind of, you know, on the uh, on the stage at any one time. It just really plays to her strength as an actor.
1: Right. Well, I mean, she must have been known because she left Doctor Who at the end of the season to go play Portia in Merchant in Venice. Yeah. Okay. So I think I think she's known as an actress and or for her acting ability. Yeah. And yeah. she really comes across. I think this is one of her best acted roles. Absolutely. And she's really grown into the character here in her fourth story. And I think Holmes is still since. I think Holmes is, uh, is checking out. He, you know, uh, Graham Williams convinced him to stay on as script editor for a few stories while Williams finds his replacement. Right. And this is his old friend Terrence Dix, so he's putting the effort into making the script good, and it pays off. I think he loses attention as he gets closer and closer to seeing the exit door. Right And right. so there's two masters of Doctor Who script writing working here, Dix and Holmes, that make this script really tightly put together. It's economical in its dialogue. It's sharp and crisp in the way that with the character's are in, but it's not kind of the witty... Banter that the Moffat era is known for. Right, this is right. this is more believable. It's not going for comedic characters that we have like an RTD type era or um, really the 1940s sophisticated dialogue that Moffat seems to like. Yeah. This is very believable. Even like Annette Woollett, who plays Adelaide, is believable in her reactions calling Leela a bit grotesque, but then Skinsdale saying, you know, she's quite a looker. And then the response of Adelaide is, were you a long time in India, (laughs) (laughs) Colonel? So it's, I think everything works really well together
0: yeah and i mean the dialogue it's, it's it, i think that's a really good observation you pulled out the mm-hmm. dialogue is kind of flat it's not kind of witty backwards and forwards banter i mean you right. really believe that these are people who are cast away mm-hmm. i mean and they're not cast away very seriously because you know obviously all they got to do is get on the blur to their private secretary um mm-hmm. and you know someone will come and rescue them but i mean it's 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 very very realistic um right. dialogue Mm-hmm. Um, which again i think in new who and um i'll look you know one can one can wind through wind through all the edwardian episodes of new who you know there's a desire to make it kind of witty and kind of you know agatha christie or pg woodhouse right people in the past were more intelligent and more witty than people in the present right uh, you know but this is this is really um this is really realistic dialogue mm-hmm. um it's almost like you know you 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 feel like you're watching a serious drama of some kind which of course you are
1: it's realistic dialogue but It's dialogue with heart for the character, especially concern for Leela. Because Leela gets to stand up for herself and she undercuts whenever Tom as the doctor and probably Tom as the the man actor zings her or belittles her, she is able to come back. And so like at the beginning of part three, she's had kind of enough of the crap. And she says, that is what I thought, but of course, I am only a savage. Right, right. And and then in part four, she is the one that comes up with the idea to use the lighthouse as a laser. So yep. she's ultimately the one that th- comes up with the idea, not the not the implementation plan, but the, why don't we use the lighthouse? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful bit of writing, and yep. when Louise Jameson is able to do this— she plays Leela really well. We see her beautiful smile. Yeah. And she's yep. modest about it. Like when, when she comes up with the lighthouse I or using the, the lighthouse, the doctor kind of repeats it saying, well, are you suggesting I convert the carbon arc beam into something? And Leela says, well, obviously. <laughs> it's not like it's an accident like it would be like with Joe. Leela is sharp and yep. she is saying that this, she just may not know the technical details on how to bring it to fruition. Yep. But, I mean, ironically, of
0: course, um, the tension between the, the two actors mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you have the older man who feels he's more experienced and, you know, have the younger woman who feels mm-hmm. insecure um, and wants to prove herself to the older man that she kind of looks up to, is also a bit scared of, um, right. but also wants to develop a good relationship with because, you know, she really kind of admires him in some way. But, yeah, that's, that's the relationship between the two actors in real life. Um, and I think it's a really good example of how, you know, the actual real life stage relationship very, f- you know, luckily feeds very, very well into the acted relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's ironically both of those actors really having a pretty tough time on this set. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for one of them, it's his own fault, but the other it's not really her fault. Yeah. Um, uh, I think you said, you know, just just, just feeds really well into, into into how they're able to play those parts.
1: Mm hmm. There's interesting bits in the script of pacing, like when Palmerdale is trying to wake up Harker to get to use the Marconi telegraph. Right. Harker then just gets increasingly agitated to a point where he started trying to choke Palmerdale or kill Palmerdale when the doctor comes in. And then, then just a few minutes later... <laughs> Uh, I just wonder if Palmerdale has one of these, what is kind of going in the news now as a punchable face, because minutes later, Leela <laughs> threatens to cut his heart out if he doesn't listen. So right, right. I kind yeah. of see, well, he's kind of one of these pricks that just really gets under people's craw. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's used to being able to get his way, but then they have that conversation between Skinsdale and Palmerdale where Skinsdale says, for all your money, you're just a little jumped up money grubber. And Skinsdale's an officer and a gentleman, so if Palmerdale tries to ruin his uh, reputation, he'll he'll sue him because there's no evidence. Even though apparently Skinsdale gave him some kind of hot stock tip or something like that, he yep. can't use it because they're stuck on this lighthouse, and yeah. that's that. That provides the urgency. Like you said earlier, they're really not stranded on this. All they have to do is make a a, a wireless call. And they'll be rescued. But it's the urgency that Palmerdale has that put them in the danger at the beginning that crashed them in the rock to get back to London. In order to cash in. Yeah, when the market opens, it's kind of like, well, it's like oxygen. We have a capitalist agenda that ultimately leads to everyone's death because they if it was just uh if they were going slow in the fog then obviously palmerdale skinsdale and adelaide and harker would have survived and the captain of the ship yeah right
0: exactly exactly so i i, I just want to
1: call out another little little costume
0: piece uh, the doctor's bowler hat um is oh, yes. wonderful i'm very sorry that that never really came back um it's obviously part of tom wanting to mess around on the set and put on a stupid hat but it suits him brilliantly and i love it
1: it fits in with the monty python eric idol performance earlier it certainly does and it is <laughs> it
0: is absolutely appropriate for an edwardian lighthouse as well you know that's the kind of hats that they had mm-hmm. and it looks great um uh, i also want to call out the uh, the rutin's eye view um i always love a monster mm-hmm. eye view of things um yep, that was
1: Patty Russell's idea, yep, so um, that really works
0: well. Yeah, monsters always always have an interesting pr- perspective on things, mm-hmm. um, and it's great to see it's great to see the monsters, you know, getting a look in. And, and it's can... always
1: accompanied by a really nice, uh, I think it's BBC Radiophonic Workshop sound effect of the kind of mm-hmm. bl- 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 "I am a rootin." Mm-hmm. Bl- 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 yeah, right. So it, I think it between the the circular greenish blue. Uh, So so the rootin sees in black and white, but then we have a greenish blue kind of veiny, blurry, blobby frame around it. But then you also have that calliope rootin-esque music always around it too, whenever we're seeing that rootin view. That's really, really clever. And like you said, it's nice to see.
0: And I'll I'll, I'll also just kind of really sort of call back. Again, what I'm trying to do with these is really trying to remember back what it was like seeing these Mm -hmm. when I was watching them fresh as a kid. Um, I really wanted at least one of these characters to survive. I was really kind of rooting for them. Mm -hmm. Um, When you finally realize that everyone is going to die apart from the Doctor and Leela, it's terrible. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's really horrific and obviously you know it's 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 i'm not going to list them off now because i can't remember them all you know there's a set of doctor who series where you know everybody dies um and um uh, i you know i think i think probably the most egregious and um a kind of least effective everybody dies uh, uh serial is um warriors of the deep you know which is like it's a kind of it's typical soured, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is really, you really feel for these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really don't want everyone to die. And it's, it's like a Greek tragedy of some kind, you know, mm-hmm. where it's just, it's, it's just destiny that all of these characters... Th- dies. Th- ...through no fault of their own.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, everyone dies in a manner that is their comeuppance. Yeah, 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 exactly. Palmerdale gets zapped. Falls off the side of the lighthouse when he, <laughs> when he's trying to bribe Vince. Right. Skinsdale's greed zaps him on the stairs. Adelaide gets zapped in the crew quarter, just shrieking. Right. Harker, oh well, Harker is a, <laughs> Harker doesn't get get what his comeuppance is, but. Vince is very trusting. Ben is killed down by the generator. It's
0: it, it's it, it's funny. It's it's actually kind of an opposite to what we were saying about um, robots of death, where what right. makes it so effective is that actually there is no rhyme or reason to who gets killed, mm-hmm. um, and and people do not get punished mm-hmm. for being bad people. The bad, some of the bad people survive, and some of the good people get killed. Mm-hmm. In this one, it's actually, you know, there are, there are, you know, people are kind of punished for their bad decisions, um, and you almost get the idea, you know, this Rutan is kind of like an avenging angel, you know, that is, <laughs> that is kind of sweeping through this lighthouse, um, fallen uh, from the heavens, <laughs> exactly, and and like uh, like so many Doctor Who monsters. We're not really given a strong reason of why the Rutan wants to kill everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, obviously, you know, that's the kind of thing Doctor Who monsters do, so fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, uh, the Rutan doesn't have to actually kill everybody. It kind of kills everybody because it enjoys doing it. I think Um, so. And, and you know, the, sm- the you know, the horrific smiles of of, 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 of Ben the Rutan, um, you know, tell us that this Rutan is, is, is enjoying being a human and it's mm-hmm. enjoying killing humans. Um, and it's enjoying, you know, because it could just as easily kill humans by being a Rutan. Um, mm-hmm. in, in some ways, it doesn't necessarily have to turn into a human. And there is a, you know, there's a sadistic... Note to this creature, um, which of course makes them entirely the correct the correct monsters to be fighting um, Sontarans, because we also know the Sontarans are an incredibly sadistic race. We've seen Mm -hmm. them in action, um, uh, 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 you know, torturing humans on the Earth in. In the far future, in the Sontaran experiment, right, right. Um, they're very well matched for each other. These right. are these are these are literal monsters mm-hmm. um, who are uh, delight in torturing and tormenting and killing
1: people. Mm-hmm. And just to touch back on your Warriors of the Deep reference, I think the lighting has to be called out on yes. this story. Yep, the yep, the yep. the lighting, the studio lighting, of Bob gel. No, is you amazing this sells it you it just the green light for the rutan the red light for the boiler the kind of golden light in the crew quarters or down the stairs the the moonlit light out on the rocks the lamp room lighting which kind of has a bluish hint to it it's All different types of lenses and gels and whatnot for the lighting, but it works really well and it's dark and it's atmospheric and it's moody and it really sells the sets and helps cover up if there are any flaws, it covers up flaws. It really helps add to the whole atmosphere of this story. And I
0: think, you know, I think I think your comment about, you know, Pebble Mill really wanting to Show people what they can do. I mean, kudos to the you know the lighting staff at Pebble Mill, because as mm-hmm. we all know, the lighting the lighting folks at um, the lighting crews at um, the BBC Television Centre um, were kind of dicks most of the time, <laughs> and were the kind of from what we can understand by you know a- the anecdotes of the cast and crew uh, were the bane of everyone's lives. Um, you know what? I'd like <laughs> to have, exactly. What I'd like to have, I'd love someone, you know, one of the kind of you know Doctor Who research nerds. I'd love to have an interview with, like, a BBC lighting te- technician of the, of the late 1970s or kind of early 1980s. Like, why were you such a horrible person? Why did everyone hate you all so much? What did you think you were doing? Um, everyone thinks you thinks you did a bad job. Why didn't you just, like, take a leaf out of the, out of the crew at Pebble Mill and, like, do a good job? Um, we, sh- we should be able to find these people. Um, and we should be able to ask them what the hell they thought they were doing.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe they were trying to lay everything as if they were the BBC News Hour.
0: Maybe, yeah, maybe yes. Mm -hmm. If it was, if it was, yeah, the six o'clock news. Did Mm -hmm. we have six o'clock news in those days? I think the news (laughs) was at five thirty. Hmm, Hmm. early evening news. I think it was Mm -hmm. called. Anyway, yeah.
1: So the the story does have quite a bit of Tom input that. or well, not quite a bit, but this uh, Patty Russell was saying Tom was out of hand with his ideas, and right. she did allow obviously some things to go through the early shmurly that Tom oh, I love is early saying, shmurly. that is entirely a Tom Baker line that he uh put in that they let slide um I will, if if i
0: i i i can't i i don't know when I ever really have the opportunity to do that, but whenever I see or read the word shmurly I always go early schmerley <laughs> um, and if I'm ever on a lighthouse or on a ship and see a shmurly i will just say early schmerley <laughs> it's fun to say
1: it is and that's why I put it in there but that's yep. <laughs> and, um Terence goes, I don't think I even had that in the script, so that's entirely. <laughs> Entirely Tom And this is where the uh, I I don't know if it's infamous But the famous chameleon factor Comes Ah. into place In the cliffhanger of episode 3 Where uh, Tom's very unique pronunciation Of uh, words comes into play Well he's an alien I mean he possibly
0: (laughs) doesn't know how to pronounce chameleon well,
1: perhaps it is, or it could be. He's like uh, the Matt Smith doctor with a metabolus. <laughs> metabolus,
0: metabolist, yes, metabolus three. Who knows? Who and, knows?
1: Um, Louise, <laughs> after they kind of uh, their differences came to a head in filming of episode three, or the recording of episode three, in part four, in that early scene where Leela is going. You, Doctor, are a time Lord. You can see Louise Jameson as the camera pulls away from the shot, just breaking out and laugh, laughter. Right, right, right That's because Tom was pulling faces at her, trying to get her to corpse all through that time. So he he started to lighten up a little bit, and she's uh, again, Leela, I think, sells it, and she doesn't quite corpse. Because it's almost as if she's trying to, you know, let the air out of the doctor a little bit right. with this kind of sarcastic line. It's one of the lines earlier that Liz Slating would have given with, uh, like, in the beginning of *Pyramid Mars*. Like, "Oh, I know you're a Time Lord," so right. it's the it's the companion uh, just trying to let the doctor know you're taking things you're you're a little too serious sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly and uh, another another louise jameson uh, Lila Leela moment is when Adelaide faints, <laughs> the eye roll that Louise gives or yeah. have Leela gives is priceless. I think that's and that's right that's almost right before Adelaide is zapped by Reuben and yeah. uh, Leela does not suffer Adelaide or this faint hearted woman no. a, at all. She slaps her earlier, she rolls her eyes when she faints. Adelaide is not warrior material for the 17, put it that way.
0: No, no, she wouldn't last five minutes with the 17. Um, they'd sacrifice her to something as soon as look at her, basically, <laughs> I think. She's great. She's great sacrifice material, but pretty much uses for everything else mm-hmm. I'd have said.
1: And very a very good contrast to our warrior an
0: excellent contrast, an excellent contrast. Um, and you know, really presents how leader is, is a, what's the word? I don't know how, what to use the, the right word. She is a, uh, uh, in many ways more civilized, more capable, better, and pr- pretty much every, every, every way than Adelaide, I think really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So the other, other little bit is with the dialogue, I, the, Ruben, the Rutan, always is referring to we and are. He's always talking to himself in third, about in third person. Right. right? And, and third person plural. And that's interesting. And I'm wondering if there's something that was going on with the script with Dix. You know, is this make it seem, Rutan seem more like a. Uh, gestalt-type being?
0: Yeah, I think they're one of these gestalt things that we kind of enjoyed in in this point in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. I think there were a lot of gestalt creatures. Well, I mean, think, you know, with just a few um, uh, episodes hence, um, we will meet a, a gestalt entity from the dawn of time. Um, <laughs> a Fendal, if you will. Right. Um, yeah, I think it was very popular, and it makes them sound creepy. I think um, I'm, if I only would only bother to do my research, I mean, I think it comes from, <laughs> you know, bits of, you know, 1950s science fiction which are being regurgitated and re-represented um, uh, here by um, by Terence Dix, but uh, uh, actually no, I, I actually suspect this is more Holmes. In fact, because mm-hmm. um, it's Holmes who's the who's the fifties, forties, fifties sci-fi fan. Um, but it uh, works very well, and you know it differentiates them nicely from the humans. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, forward-looking, it differentiates them very nicely from for the from the Santarans who True. even though they are a clone race they're all exactly the same are very individual um or you know individualistic they're very kind of anne randy um <laughs> i always feel sontarans um whereas uh, rutans are sort of Borgy, but also kind of anne randy as well because they're all about being supreme about things so hmm. anyway
1: yeah well there's there's some definite prejudice going on between the doctor and the, and the Rutan, but that's it, exactly. that's okay in this story i think it's very well fitting <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the Rutans are horrible. They're more horrible than the Santarans, which is saying a lot because the Sontarans are I mean, the search I I'm i I think I've said this before, but you know, I'm I'm very I'm actually quite sad that the um New Who has decided to turn the Santarans into a joke. Um mm. uh, they were yeah. really pretty oppressive as 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 monsters to begin with um and I think you know, we couldn't make the Rutans lovable uh, lovable mm. dolts like we've made the Santarans.
1: What the way the Rutans are being portrayed is they're predators. Yeah, and it, it's like a, it's a sci-fi genre where you have the alien predator, like Alien or Predator. They see themselves as superior, and this they this is sport. This is fun for them, the killing. Yeah, and yeah, you get exactly. more with the with the Santarans. It's more about well, with Lynx, it's more. It's all about the warrior. It's you know, he wants a fair fight, even though he's gonna kick butt. right. And right. With the Rutan, it's more it's more predatory. I'm just gonna kill for killing's sake. And you yeah. see that with the devilish grin of Reuben.
0: Yeah, and actually, I mean, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it is very alien esque. I mean, you know, everyone knows that you know Ridley Scott must have been watching Doctor Who fran- <laughs> frantically through all of the seventies in order to come up with Alien, um, or maybe Dan O'Bannon was watching was watching um, Doctor Who frantically in the seventies. Who knows? But someone, someone who who then came up with Alien was watching Doctor Who, and this is this is very like the classic nineteen seventy nine Alien. You know, you're stuck in a place with a thing, and the thing is going to kill you, and there's actually pretty much. Nothing you can do about it. Right. Yeah. I think it will pursue you and it will, it will find you mm-hmm. and it will kill you.
1: Yeah. If the doctor hadn't been there, if, the, if Lila and the doctor hadn't been there, then yeah, the who knows? The Rutan's root, root would have came and taken over the world.
0: Yeah, exactly, and then the Sontarans would have would have turned up as well, and the Earth would have been destroyed as part of that war. So a cinder in space. It's just, uh, left as a, a radioactive cinder in space, or whatever it is. Yeah, well, there you go. A lucky escape. It's a good thing the Doctor and Leela <laughs> turned up at the time that they did. Yes,
1: it did. Yes, I know. What a coincidence! The world that saved is... once again.
0: Then the <laughs> Once again, they've saved the world and uh, ended up uh, ensuring that the people they were with died. But you know. The, you know, the quest is the quest. Um, so <laughs> that's just what happens when you find yourself in a Doctor Who adventure. <laughs> well, very cool. I believe that we have probably said enough about this amazing yes. about this amazing, amazing, amazing episode.
1: I think this is one of my top five of all time. So I really enjoy this one. Really, yes. I, you
0: know, actually having reviewed this for. Um, uh, not as much as i would have liked but i i did i did re- reviewed as much as i could for this mm-hmm. for this podcast it's gone way up in my estimation and i think deserves some more rewatches um mm-hmm. it's not one i often turn to but i need to turn to it more um mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a real corker cool, i just love that dialogue i love the characterization one thing it's a different era um but I think it's maybe it's Reuben that gives me this feeling. It feels very like st- the Sam Peckinpah movie Straw Dogs in some sort of way. You know, people people trapped inside a stone place, being mm-hmm. attacked by something. It's it's very, mm-hmm. it's very it's very kind of raw and kind of gritty and mm-hmm. you know salty. Um, I I love it. It's mm-hmm. it's it's great. And that Rutan, my god, horrible creature.
1: Well, this it's emergency script. Tom Baker thought it was rubbish. He was wrong. Um, I think just the, the, and he wasn't getting along with anyone on set, but everyone really was focused in on this show, this program, this particular serial to elevate it above the problems that were at its creation. Yep. And in my opinion, it's not heralded enough as the masterpiece that it is. No, nope. no, nope. absolutely. This, this is nearly perfect 1970s Doctor Who. Very nearly perfect.
0: Um, I I, I don't think we can really categorize anything that's wrong with it, because I don't think there is anything wrong with it, to be honest. I think it's fantastic.
1: Nothing worth saying.
0: Yep, exactly. Exactly. Well, everybody, um, if you have not seen The Horror of Fang Rock, I demand (laughs) that you immediately go to your your digital versatile versatile disc Mm. watching device. Um, or to your internet. Head to Britbox. Yeah, go get a DVD and exactly. <laughs> yeah, make sure you pay for it. Okay. <laughs> I don't want you to watch anything. don't watch anything for free. The, the, this stuff only gets presented to you if you if you if you pay for it. and just watch <laughs> and just watch the hell out of this one. It's brilliant. Well yes. worth the watch. Well worth the watch.
1: All right, so thank you for listening to the Metabulous 2 flashback podcast on Horror Fang Rock. I am David. And I am Ben. And thanks for listening. Oh, thank you so much for listening to us tonight. Next week, the invisible enemy. Ooh, contact has been made. <laughs> contact has been made. Contact has been made. Look at my eyebrows. Um, yeah, excellent.
0: Looking forward to it.
1: Next time on a Metabulous 2 podcast. Where are we going, Doctor? Into the land of dreams and fantasy, Leela. Ben and David flash back to the invisible enemy.